Good morning, church. Those of you that are not sick, welcome to service. Uh, I know a lot of people were battling through some different sicknesses, but uh, welcome to church. And uh, like was shared earlier, our theme is building family. And with that theme, we're going through the book of Genesis. And we'll be in Genesis chapter six. So if you'd like to hop over there now, that would be great. Uh, This is a moment I've been dreading for a long time. Because I wanted to talk to you guys about something, uh, it's, which is true. But whenever someone says they want to talk to you about something, it's usually not good, right? It's never like, you're doing great. Um, but anyway, no, I, I want to talk to you about something because I've been dreading this, this text because of two reasons. One, it's three and a half chapters. So Noah's flood is the topic for today. And the flood there is three and a half chapters. Now, I'm not going to read all of it because that that would take our full 30 minutes, I think. So we're going to slice it up and I'm going to try to fill in the blanks. But I encourage you to go read it later if you haven't already read Genesis 6 through Genesis 9 and a half. Uh, The other thing is that I've never particularly liked this story. I know you're thinking you're the leader of the church. I thought you liked all Christian things all the time. You go home and listen to Christian worship music and, and uh, read the King James, you know, to help you fall asleep. You know, that's not so much uh, what I do, but there are certain things just like you in the Bible that sort of rub me, rub me the wrong way. So we're going to talk about that this morning. But the title of my lesson today is Come Hell or High Water. It's a southern phrase, I think. Usually it means, uh, you know, no matter what happens, I'm going to do this thing. Well, come hell or High water. Today we're going to talk about both those things, both hell and high water. Um, and so I've never particularly liked this passage um, for a couple of reasons. And one is this idea of a judging God. And have you ever heard there was there was a woman once who uh, approached a, a minister after after he preached on a passage about God being a judging God. And she approached him and she said during a Q&A and she said, you know, I just cannot believe in hell. I cannot believe in a God who judges um, I, it just, it's offensive to me, uh, the idea that we have to sort of be good people or, or live good lives in order to stave off the divine wrath, you know, of this, of this Old Testament God. Like, I just, I cannot believe that. It, it bothers me. And, and a lot of people feel that way. A lot of people feel that way. We, we're okay with a loving God. There's no, we're, no problem for most of us with a loving God, but a judging God bothers us. And why does it bother us? And there's a few reasons for it. But in our culture, divine judgment is one of Christianity's most offensive doctrines. Uh, it bothers a lot of people, uh, and, and, and for good reason. Um, a lot of people suggest that Christians believe that people bound for hell are probably less deserving of dignity, worth, and that this basic belief leads to violence, exclusion, and division. And therefore, in order to have more love and in order to be able to be at peace and to be unified, we have to just have a God of love and not a God who judges. Uh, and there's a, a, couple, a couple issues with that. And uh, this woman at the Q&A with the preacher, uh, the preacher asked her a couple questions. First of all, he identified that her sense of or her her revulsion was more of a, of a feeling of revulsion, not really so much of a doubt in God's existence. It's not like she was doubting God's existence. She was just offended by this, this part of God uh, that, that she didn't really agree with. 
And to make a good point too, he said, first of all, where does the idea of a God of love come from? Like, where did you get that idea that God is a God of love? Did you get it from history? From World War II and the Holocaust and the civil rights movement in America, race relations? Did you, no, no, you didn't get it from that because if anyone who studied history, like I did, there's, there's, not a lot of, there's not a God of love in history. You don't see it. Do you see it in our current international relations? I don't see a lot of God of love in our international relations. I don't see a God of love in our interstate relations, our intercommunity or our interneighborhood relations. So where does this idea of a God of love come from? I would argue it comes from the Bible. That's where you got the idea. So you, you, you like the idea from the Bible that God is a God of love, but the God, idea that God is judging God also from the Bible, you don't like. And so what the preacher asked this woman is he goes, you know, our, our, our culture in America, in, in the West, in Canada, actually is one that believes a lot in expressive individualism. Actually, 80% of all Americans believe that an individual should come to a personal stance or a personal belief about religion without the help of anybody else. 80%. Individual expression. That's what, our, that's what we believe. It is, it is uh, the fabric of your, your lunch your dinner, the, the Wendy's pick two for five, pick three for five, pick six for five, pick two. You pick, have it your way. Every, all marketing is for you. You have autonomy. You have control. You can choose which of the five you want. You can choose. You can have it, whatever. Your personal choice is what matters. Therefore, we've made God in our own image. We've said, okay, well, that's what matters. Therefore, God is, as a God of love, that makes sense because God will then support whatever decision I make. But God is a God of judging. That means God calls the shots. That means God establishes right and wrong. No, no, no. I establish right and wrong. That's what I've been taught. That's what I teach my kids, right? I, you decide. Don't do anything you don't want to do. Don't do anything that makes you feel uncomfortable, right? And so he asked her if she thought that Western culture was superior to all other cultures. And she says, no, of course not. And he said, well, did you know that in like the East... In traditional cultures, they're offended by the idea of a God of uh, forgiveness. And he says, why aren't, you, uh, why aren't you offended by the idea of a God of forgiveness? And she looks puzzled. And he says, well, because it's part of your culture. The Middle Eastern culture is one of justice and eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. The idea to turn the other cheek to an enemy is offensive to someone from Saudi Arabia, someone from Morocco, someone from Egypt, etc., 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 So what do we do? They really like the justice part of God. We really like the loving part of God. So where does God fit in all that? Is he on our side? Is he on their side? Where is he? But it's this idea that God is not born from a culture. God transcends culture. And if God transcends culture, then it makes sense that every culture will be a little offended by him in some way. Because he didn't come from us. He's above us. And it makes sense that God, that sure. And so the fact that I wrestle, we wrestle as Americans the same way that someone from Tunisia would wrestle with, but I just, I can't get past this forgiveness thing. I can't get past it. So it actually helps give us reasoning and evidence that God is above both of those things. And he's also a God of love and justice. That God can be a God of both love and judgment. 
And this is, a, this is an important, important distinction to make because uh, there's a great quote about love even. Um, and a lot of times when we think about the last time you were angry, why were you angry? Uh, anger is not the opposite of love. There's a great quote by a woman named Becky uh, Pippert. She says, think how we feel when we see someone we love ravaged by unwise decisions or relationships. Do we not respond or sorry, do we respond with benign tolerance as we might towards strangers? Far from it. Anger is not the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but his settled opposition to a cancer, which is eating out the insides of the human race, the human race that he loves with his whole being. Of course, God would be angry if he loves us. You see someone who is destroying their life with bad decisions. How do you feel? Well, let them make their own choices. No, it hurts. And you, and you get angry because you go, oh, they're, they're killing themselves. But they're going back to that same relationship. They're going back to that same drug. They're going back to that same profession. They're going back to those same friends. We see that and we get angry because we love. And so, it's there. so we can't, we got to really see God for who he is, who, who, the God of the Bible, and not just the God who our culture makes the most palatable or makes the easiest to digest. Right. That God is, in fact, a God of love. And the woman says, well, it just makes you sound narrow-minded to the preacher. So she told him. And he says, if there's a cookie, and I believe that that cookie is poison, and you believe it's a delicious dessert, I believe that if you don't eat it, you're going to save yourself. You believe if I don't eat it, I'm just missing out on a tasty dessert. Does it mean I'm narrow-minded? Because we have a different perspective on the cookie? And he's just helping her see all these labels, all these words that, we, that our culture throws at us really don't make any sense. That we, have, we believe that if you eat that cookie, there will be destruction. But we have a problem with this idea of hell because we don't even know really what hell is. We think hell is this idea of People burning alive for a million years or something and in eternity. And the idea of hell is a difficult one. The Bible uses fire to talk about hell quite a bit. We can't get into all this. I wish we could. I'm already going to, I'm already trying to perform a miracle by doing three and a half chapters with a preface on judgment in 30 minutes. So hell, fire, this idea, I want to encourage you to talk to me about it later or study it out yourself. In the Bible, this idea of fire is this idea of disintegration and pain. Those that are, those that are uh, uh, sin actually separates you from God, right? So when you sin, your, your life is disintegrating and you experience pain. Now, hell for some people is beginning now. Their, their sin is all, it's, it's separated them from God. They're, and it begins with their complaining, their mumbling, their pride, their self-focus. People have already begun the path toward hell. And that, that, that path, their soul will just continue in hell for eternity. Pain and disintegration. We don't know what it actually looks like, but we know that decisions have consequences. And we know, a lot of us know, that we've made decisions where right afterwards we've suffered that pain and we've suffered the, the consequence of the decisions we've made. And all God is trying to do is to help us see that he wants us, just like any parent, just like any friend, you see, like if you stand on top of a building and you see different routes for cars, you know that they take one route and you, see, you can see the other cars coming. You go, man, there's going to be an accident. But the other one, you can go a lot faster. You can have a lot more. Like Maya was sharing, like, she, didn't, she didn't realize the kind of love she'd feel. And God is just a God who is, 
who is exuding with love. And actually his anger is because he's a God of love. Not, not the opposite of love. If God was indifferent, if God was like, I don't care what you do. If God was like, you can do whatever you want. I don't, I'm indifferent. I don't care. That's actually hate. That's actually awful. But God cares about us. So he can get angry, just like we do. Anger is not a sin. We can't get into all that right now. But I want to encourage us to think about how the fact that God is a God of both love and justice and that God is above our culture. And here in the book of Genesis, chapter 6, we actually have something very incredible. We have a dual theme. We have two themes in this text. And we're going to talk about both right here. We're going to start in Genesis 6, verse 9. My hope is that, is that as we read, it starts pouring. Uh, so we can get kind of a theme here. And then, like, as I continue to preach, the water levels rise and we get more and more nervous. So here's hoping. Uh, Genesis 6, verse 9. Actually, let's start a tad earlier. Verse uh, 5. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. You see that? God's heart is deeply troubled. Verse 7, so the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I've created, and with them the animals, the birds, the creatures that move along the ground. For I regret, I regret that I've made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the account. This is the genesis of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he, he walked faithfully with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become for all the people on the earth had corrupted their ways. You get the point? It was corrupt. The word in Hebrew is ruin. They were ruining themselves and God had decided, you know what? I'm going to allow themselves either to let them ruin themselves or I will ruin what they've already begun to destroy. People had begun to destroy themselves already from the inside out. Verse 13, so God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people. For the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood. <coughs> make rooms <coughs> in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you're going to build it. A bunch of details, bunch of details, bunch of details about how you're going to build it. Verse 22, Noah did everything just as God commanded him. I love that. So God sees that the earth is bringing about judgment on itself. God says, you know what? I'm a God of justice. Actually, I got to witness this a bit last night. In a, there's a certain family in the church. And, uh, you know, they had allowed their son to, to stay up a bit past his bedtime. And he was, being, he was being good. And so one parent said, well, he deserves to stay up later because he's been good. The other parent said, well, we, we, had, made, we had said at this time he needs to go to bed. It was, it was, it was there it was. It was justice and mercy going to battle and parenting. Who will win the justice, the mercy? They talked it out. And they did a great job talking it out and, and, and then they figured it out. But I thought, man, it's God, right? It's mercy, but it's justice. This is what I said, but I love them. But these are the boundaries, but I love them. But I, I told them, but I love them. And it's that constant struggle. And God decides at this point, discipline needs to happen. Like any child, discipline is very important. Discipline the child can understand. 
a discipline that we need discipline as well. Discipline in our bodies is very important. Discipline in our soul, etc., etc. And God gives him these specific commands to build an ark. And uh, I love that we get, what specifics do we get? Now, in Old Testament narrative, we never, ever, ever get a description of what the people looked like. Because 21st century Americans care about what people looked like. Hebrews in ancient times did not. They cared about the person's soul, the integrity. Noah was blameless. Noah obeyed. Noah walked with God. And we go, what did he look like? Did he have long hair? Did he have short hair? Did he have a mustache? Was he he tall? Was he fat? Was he skinny? Was he short? What was he? Because everything we do is physical, physical, appearance, appearance, appearance. That's not what they care about. That's not what the author of this book cares about. They They want us to see who is Noah. And Noah walked with God. I love that we don't get any details about Noah, like, responding. It's Noah's response is summed up in three Hebrew words. He did it. The translation is, and Noah did everything that was commanded of him. He did it. We don't get, Noah went to the, to, to the lumber yard and gopher wood. The price was high on gopher wood that year. And um, he was way over budget. And he had to talk to God about extending the budget and had maybe some expansions, maybe some renovations to add some new animals and mix it up. He says, no, no, he did it. He did it. Let's keep reading. We're actually going to skip chapter 7. Because of time, uh, verse 8, verse 1, uh, 724 will start. The water comes, the water begins to flood the earth. And in verse 24 of chapter 7, the waters flooded the earth for 150 days. But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark. And he sent a wind over the earth and the waters. That's going to come into play later. Uh, he sent a wind over the earth. He sent his spirit. He sent his ruach over the earth to, to take the waters away. Now, the, spirits, uh, the springs of the deep and the floodgates of the heavens have been closed and the rain stopped falling from the sky. Skip down to verse six. After 40 days, uh, Noah opened a window from the ark and sent out a raven. Later, he sends out a dove. Why does he do that? Ravens are carrying uh, birds, which means they'll go to the mountaintops. That's the one you send out first. No, uh, a dove is a valley bird. And so later on, he sends out a dove to make sure that it's okay. So he's, he's thinking through. A lot of source critics will say, why is, the, why is this story always repeat itself? Doves, ravens, what's the point of repetition? But there's always a point. There's always a point of what's going on. And it's a cool point that even that, that God is speaking even in what kinds of birds Noah sent. Noah sends out what kinds of birds here. He figures out the dove, the dove comes back with an olive branch. Then the dove doesn't come back at all. That's a good sign. And they decide to, uh, to disembark. Verse, chapter 9, verse 8. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals and all those that came out from the ark with you, every creature on the earth. I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I've set my bow in the clouds and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. So what in the world is this about? Is it just the children's tale? We tell kids about the animals. Uh, is it just uh, uh, one of those things that we like to ask lots of questions about? Like were the dinosaurs on the ark? You know, were they not on the ark? And did, 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 did it flood the whole earth? Or did it just mean the land around Israel? And get into all those questions that we like to ask. But Let's, we're not going to do that today because we're going to try to get into what God wants us to change in our hearts. What are, we, what are we supposed to hear from this? 
And I want to ask you a question. Why Noah? All the earth was filled with violence. Everybody was, every inclination of every thought was only evil all the time. It's a lot of extremes. Why Noah? Did he earn it? He was obedient. He was blameless. He walked with God. Some of you say, no, he didn't earn it. Sure sounds like he did. God chose him, right? Why Noah? Why did God choose Noah? Why, why not just do a hard restart? Why not, like, like you are in the middle of a video game that's going very poorly. Why not, just, why not just unplug the thing? Restart, hard restart. Let's do it. I'm done. Level one. Why Noah? Why his family? Why? What did he do? Now we're tempted to think that it was his conduct. And I think that's partially true. Noah did obey. In a time where, where the world was, it's characterized by violence and everyone doing their own thing, what was the character trait that made Noah stand out? Obedience. Yeah. Obedience. We struggle as a, as a people to obey. <laughs> we like this thing uh, called, uh, but as long as your heart's in it. Yeah, we like that, right? It's like, God told the rich young ruler to sell everything he had and give it to the poor. But that's not applicable to you, only if your heart's in it. This other scripture that's really intense, only if your heart's in it. This other scripture that's really radical, only if your heart's in it. And I get the, the purpose of that. I get the reasoning behind that. But I think that we are a, a people, and I'm one of them, a generation who doesn't love obedience. We want to know the reason for everything, and we're totally okay with going against it. There are very few people that I know of that will just obey blindly and not ask questions. Everyone, we're way on the other side. Why do, we, why do I have to go to midweek? Why Wednesday? Why not Thursday? Why, why do we have church on Sunday? Why do we take the bread and the little thing with the, with the cup? And the, why? Why is there an incline? Why not decline? Why? Where's us, right? How come? Why are you telling me I have to do it? Why do I got to pray? What if I just do it in my head? Why do I got to read? Why, do, why can I just do this? That's us, right? Yeah. We're constantly wiggling and shaking and moving and adjusting and having a cool new perspective on a scripture that for thousands of years only meant one thing. That's us. And I love that God is saying, I saw this guy. Everyone was only evil all the time. And then God, you can kind of see God struggling. And he goes, there's this guy who obeys. There's this guy who's obeying. And it never says he was perfect. It says he was blameless. That word just means wholesome or he had integrity. He's not perfect. But the guy obeys. But it's also important to realize that Noah could not save himself. It's interesting to note, why did God give Noah so many specifics on how to build an ark? Because Noah had never done it before. What does that tell you? He's not a shipwright. God did not choose a sea captain. Who, like, you know, he chose a guy who had never done it before and gave him all the details. It's really cool that these specifics are actually the specifics of a, a, a seaworthy ship. This is, this is a real, this is actually bigger, if you, if you measure this, this is bigger than Columbus's uh, Nina uh, Pinta and Santa Maria. This is a ship. And God, these are the actual dimensions of a seagoing vessel. But God gives it to Noah because Noah doesn't know what he's doing. On board, Noah's, Noah's family, a lot of people don't know this, but Noah's family actually spent most of their lives 
uh, on the ocean like, like, as, as sea uh, captains. And they, they actually were like, no, they didn't. No, they lived in a desert in Palestine. So there's nothing about Noah that qualifies him. God didn't choose the best guy for the job. God didn't. But it's also important to know back in chapter six, I love this. It's the, the verse that I think encapsulates the whole narrative. But Noah found favor in God's eyes. God granted him favor. The word favor in Hebrew is very, very, very close to grace. God granted him grace. Now, there's some versions that are not very good versions that say Noah won this grace. I don't think that's accurate at all. But God granted him this grace. So what does this mean for us? What does this mean for me? Is God going to smite me later if I sin? Is he not? Is he going to forgive me? What's going to happen? What's the point of all this? We'll hop over to 1 Peter, and we're going to figure it out. We talked about why did, God send, why did God send a flood. We talked about why Noah. And now we're going to talk about why us. Why us? First Peter, chapter 3. This is cool. Hope you all buckled your seatbelts. This is pretty awesome. I've been loving the study of Genesis because the first time I read one of these stories in Genesis, you know what I feel? Nothing. I go, I've heard that before. The second time I read it, you know what I feel? Nothing. Read that before. But about the seventh time I read it, I go, oh my goodness. That is amazing. Did you catch that and that and that? Did you see how it connected to this and that and this and that? It's beautiful. And I think that we have discipline in our lives in every other area except the Bible. A lot of times, some of us are very disciplined at working out. We're great work, physical workouts. We read one verse and eh, I guess it doesn't mean anything. I don't know. We move on. Some of us are very disciplined with our diets. We are like on the keto or we are on the, is South Beach still a diet? That's okay. We're on the South Beach diet. We are in there. You get, you get that out of here. The car- carbohydrate in the room is gone. We don't, but I think there's something, and this goes back to our country. We have a world, for thousands of years, people believe that if you, if there was something wrong with you, it was innately spiritual. Nowadays, everything's physical. Everything's now. So it's stress management. Here's some stress management techniques. Here's some things that are good for you. Yoga, diet, all these physical things. Now, those things are good, but we don't even think about the spiritual. Don't even think about it. Um, and so I, I, just a side note, but I think for us, as we read through Genesis, I just want to share with you, it's been a blast for me to be able to study this out, but it takes time. Just like anything else, if it has value, there's a cost. And this has immense value. Um, 1 Peter 3, verse 20. Now, Peter's writing many thousand years later, and Peter has this moment where he makes this connection from Noah's Ark to something that we go through even today. And he says, after they were disobedient long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah as an ark was being constructed. This is verse 20. I love the actually, Peter picks up on something. It took a long time to build the ark. God was patient. God is patient. God doesn't just, like God's just not a cantankerous, uh, uh, evil God up there who's like, I feel like being vengeful, smite. You know, it's not, that's not God. God is patient wanting everyone to come to repentance. God's not, God's not slow. God's not quick to anger. So God waited patiently. People didn't change. 
God has sent you person after person after person. He's been patient with you, hasn't he? God was patient with me. God put me in a family of incredible elite task force disciples. They're awesome. They are like incredible people. Uh, Took me two years of studying the Bible with a friend to really get it, to really understand it. God was patient with me as I went from church service to church service, saying the right thing, and even being very condescending to others who tried to help me. Very independent, very self-reliant. And when men opened up their hearts to me, I saw them as weak. Um, I looked down on them. I cursed them in my head. And I said, I don't need need this crutch of Christianity. I'm going to be strong. I obviously had a very uh, fallacious, a very untrue perspective of what it meant to be a man of God. But God waits patiently for us. And that's that's an incredible, encouraging thing. In the ark, a few, that is eight souls, were delivered through water. And this prefigured baptism, which now saves you. Only time in the New Testament it says baptism saves you. Other times it says baptism has the forgiveness of sins. But right here, there it is, black and white, clear as crystal, as Willy Wonka would say. Right? It's right there. This prefigured baptism. They had to change the word symbolize. Some of your versions say this symbolized baptism because people got confused. They were like, wait, Noah's Ark symbolized baptism. Baptism's a symbol. But that's not how the English language works. So Noah's Ark symbolized baptism. So Noah's Ark is the symbol. Baptism is the present reality. So the NIV got together and said, we've got to change the word. The NET said, we've got to change the word. So they said prefigured. Now this water prefigured, it, help, it helps us a little bit, doesn't it? That water, that, that, that flood prefigured baptism, which now saves you. Not the washing away of physical dirt. I don't know if anybody actually thought that, but he just wants to clarify. Um, Not a bath, guys. Come on. Not washing away a physical dirt. But I think what he's saying is immediately we go to, wait, you're saying baptism saves me. That's a work, Drew. That's a work. We're saved by grace. Right. And even Peter's like, let me explain. It's not an outward thing. It's not a, a physical. It's not a magical thing. But the pledge of a good conscience. There is inward. But the pledge of a good conscience the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is an incredible passage. It's only possible because of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. But what he's saying is the water that God sent to cleanse the earth and have a new beginning. Remember when God says, I will wipe them away from the face of the earth. I will blot them out. That word in Hebrew is the same word to blot out transgressions at baptism. Remember when God cleared off the water with what? His spirit. How did he cleanse the earth with his Holy Spirit, with his with his ruach? And Peter's going, that's what's happening in baptism. Don't you get it? It's a new start. God sees how horrible everything is going. God sees how people are only choosing sin most of the time, if not all the time. And instead of sending a flood, he sends Jesus. And this Jesus is going to love. His heart's going to go out to people, but they're still going to kill him. They're still going to reject him. There are going to be people in this room who say, Drew, no, thank you. Jesus still dies for them. But Jesus' heart is constantly, in Matthew 9, it says Jesus, his heart was cut. His heart went out to those who were hurting. God's not going to force. God, after the flood, says no more. I'm not going that route again. No more floods. God says, you know what? If they don't choose to follow me, that's up to them. But I'm going to send them the biggest demonstration of love they could ever imagine in Jesus Christ. And you know what I'm going to give them as well? is just in case Satan attacks down the years, as he will, 
and say, are you really a Christian because you've sinned a lot recently? Are you really a disciple because you're not that good? That, those, that, those pounds, those, that baggage Maya was saying she carries, Satan attacks us every day. And God gave us a gift to say, get out of here, Satan, February 21st, 2003. Come on. I made a decision to be baptized with the Pledge of a Good Conscience. And does that mean I'm perfect? A lot of you know the answer to that question. No, it does not. But I made a decision with the Pledge of a Good Conscience so that I can have a gift of a great assurance of God's love. And I participate in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Just as Jesus was buried and raised to a new life, we then are buried in baptism and raised to a new life. It is a beautifully complete gift. Baptism is not a work. Baptism is not something we do. Peter makes that clear. But here's the thing. Pledge of a good conscience. What in the world does that mean? What's a pledge of a good conscience? Now, a lot of people struggle with this. They say, oh, pledge of a good conscience. That means when you go get baptized, you say, God, please give me a good conscience someday. Go in the water of baptism. I hope I get there one day. But no, I looked at three different scholars because I was nervous about this one because I had my own preconceived notion, but I didn't want to follow it. Maybe it's wrong. So I looked at three different Greek scholars and they all said, and a, and a, a Jewish historian named Josephus, and they all said the same thing. And I want to, I want to quote Josephus and his perspective on this passage. Josephus says, uh, in his view, in Josephus's view, a necessary preliminary, if baptism was to be acceptable to God, must, uh, they must not employ it to gain pardon for whatever sins they've committed, but as a consecration of the body, implying that the soul was already cleansed by right behavior. So here's the thing. The gospel should already be working on your heart when you go to baptism so that you can say with a pledge of a good conscience when people ask you questions, because we ask questions at baptism, you can say, what is your good confession? With a pledge of a good conscience, you can say, Jesus is Lord. And all a pledge of a good conscience means uh, is it's an answer of a pure conscience. Why do we study the Bible with people in great detail? It's because most of us are really bored and we don't have anything else to do. <laughs> and we really like making you feel uncomfortable. So we just do it over and over again. No, we want it because we want you at your baptism to be able to have the pledge of a good conscience. To be open about that sin you don't want to talk about. To talk about that thing that's uncomfortable. To be real, to have the answer. Because listen, it's not about us. It's not about doing the perfect thing. It's to be able to go into the waters of baptism with the pledge of a good conscience. But it's also why we don't just baptize anybody. Because the, the obedience should already be occurring before. You can't go into baptism hoping for some magical thing. Peter says it's not magical. Peter says it's not, it's not outward magical washing off of dirt. It's not outward. It's a pledge of good conscience inside. The transformation's already got to be begun. And all this means is absolute honesty and integrity before God. Get open. Get out there. A lot of times, most churches don't really have friendships and relationships. I didn't necessarily always feel this. People where I could talk to. People where I could confess some pretty nasty, horrible, disgusting things. And the people don't cast judgment on me. But the point is, is that if we hide it, what do we just become? 90 hypocrites walking around pretending we're good. And that is, that is offensive. That turns off people faster than anything else. It's people trying to pretend to be good. Then saying, I am messed up. I'm a mess. But here we've got to have an answer of a pure conscience. I want to close out with a story of a young man. That's right, he's young. A guy who did this recently. Uh, his name's Josh Riggs. And Josh Riggs, uh, Josh and his wife, Elena, moved here to Charlottesville a few months ago. 
And uh, actually, it was several more, several months ago. But Josh is studying the Bible. And what's beautiful, it was, it was as I was studying this out, I thought of him. Because he, it wasn't, he actually knew a lot of the, uh, the, the scriptures. He grew up uh, in the Church of Christ. But what, what changed for Josh was when he saw the cross. It was visible. I mean, most Bible studies were, yeah, I really should read more. Yeah, I really ought to. I really should be a better husband. I really ought to step it up here. But when we looked at the cross, I mean, he changed. He stayed up several hours that night to read a book of the Bible. He was on us to study the Bible. He was coming to everything. His demeanor had changed. I mean, it was like, it was that, that pure conscience coming out. And Josh was open about everything. Here it is. Here's my, here it, who should I tell? Should I tell somebody? I'll tell them. How should I tell them? Like he was ready to go, just go for it. But the, the pledge of a clear conscience was, was there. You know, and there was some, it's actually, it was an incredible day. There was some uncertainty about Josh with his job, whether he was going to be able to stick around long term and um, here in Charlottesville. And I, I know personally that would just make my wife and I very sad. You know, he and his wife are a, a great friends to us, even in just a short time. And Josh decides, you know what, I want to get baptized on Valentine's Day. So let's get that, That's awesome, man. Well, on Valentine's Day, he finds out he's got a full-time offer for his job here in Charlottesville. Oh, wow. On that day. And he goes and we go to the waters of baptism. And boy, it was cold. This is us here. It was freezing. Not a great picture. It was kind of dark. We were rushing there. I've never felt more cold. That was freezing. But Josh comes out of the water. And it's just this beautiful moment. I remember him saying, Jesus is Lord. And I, you know what I thought in that time? I mean, I didn't do anything. He saw the gospel. He saw Jesus. And now he has this beautiful memory, this, this gift of February 14, 2019, for the rest of his life, a decision that will affect his, his family, his coworkers, his neighbors, something beautiful, something a gift that God's been preparing for thousands of years, given to us. And all he asks is that we have a pledge of a good conscience. We're not earning anything. He's just saying, take a look at your heart and just be open because I care. I don't want Satan to get a foothold in there. Amen. So I want to encourage all of us today. Have you made that pledge of a good conscience? If not, what's preventing you? Go for it. Pull somebody aside even today and just get that stuff out of here. We're, we just want to be able to say Jesus is Lord together and be able to say together, we are all pretty jacked up. But we're all very clear on that. We're not trying to impress anybody. We're not trying to look good. Uh, we're simply just trying to live the life Jesus called us to live. And the beautiful thing is that God always provided a way out. With Adam and Eve, they sinned. He goes, I will clothe you. With Cain, Cain sins. He goes, I will put a mark on you to protect you. With the flood, God says, I'll send a flood, but I'm going I'm to I'm save a remnant of Noah's family. With Israelites in the exile, God says, I'm going to save a remnant. Today, just like back then, eight souls in all were saved by the washing of water. Now, we are God's remnant. There are 90 in Charlottesville who have been saved through the washing of water. That God is not going to let this evil world filled with violence and every inclination is only evil all the time. They're not going to win. That God will, and God's judgment will come because he's a God of justice, but he will always save. He will always love. And he's protected us. We are on the ark now. Look at us. We're here. We're in it. Now, some of us are on the ramp and we're trying to decide, get on, get off. I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't. But get on the ark because the flood's coming. Judgment will come. But Peter says we, we have this incredible gift, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, for all of us with a clear conscience to say Jesus is Lord. 
We're going to close out with a final song and amen to God be the glory.